Thank you, brother, for leading us and praying for so many things that God's Word tells us to pray for. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. We'll be in Matthew chapter 6, continuing our series on the Lord's Prayer. I will also be continuing to drink from this purple cup. Thank you, Will. Imagine this morning that rather than coming to a Christian church, you walked into a pagan temple. Imagine that I am not your Christian pastor, but rather a pagan priest. Continue to use your imagination then, and really try to pretend that rather than teaching you how to pray the Lord's Prayer this morning, because that wouldn't make very much sense in a pagan temple, pretend that I'm going to teach you how to pray like a pagan, like somebody who is of the earth, like someone who does not know the God of the Bible. I would need to begin my sermon instructing you, my pagan congregation, and how to pray like a pagan, not in telling you what to say or how to say it, but rather in trying to teach you a pagan view of God. In order to pray like a pagan, you need to have a very, very, very terribly low view of God. You must not think of God as an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving Father. Rather, you need to think about God more like a machine that can be unlocked or broken into, or even like an animal that can be stimulated or trained, or even just like a fellow human being who can be manipulated. Once you find yourself thinking about God in this way, uh, praying like a pagan will come naturally to you. Rather than using your words to communicate your heart to God, you'll use your words to try to manipulate God's heart. Okay. Rather than speaking words of truth to God, you'll try to find magic words that will unlock His good pleasure and will towards you. Rather than praying like a child who's being welcomed into his father's warm presence, you'll pray like someone who's trying to gain an audience with a dictator. Now, what if I told you that a good number of Christians already pray this way? What if I told you that so many of us who follow Jesus, who claim to be children of God, more often than not pray like pagans rather than Christians? So much of the story of God's people throughout salvation history is the story of them all too easily absorbing many aspects of the pagan cultures that surround them. Their corporate identity is infested with pagan rituals. It it kind of comes in by spiritual osmosis. And this is the reason why Jesus teaches His disciples not to pray like pagans, because He knows that they are so easily inclined to do so. So, with that in mind, let's go ahead and read our text for this morning, Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. And when you pray... 
Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Father, we know that you know what we need this morning. Nevertheless, we delight to come before you in prayer and to ask you to do us good as we dig into your word together. Would you do that, Lord, for the glory of your name and for the good of your church? Amen. The heart of a pagan prayer is the idea that God can in some way be manipulated. Jesus says that the Gentiles, and Gentiles, he just means those people under the Old Covenant who were outside of the Jews. They just weren't the people of God. We can say pagans, Romans, same thing. Uh, that, they, that they pray using empty phrases, Jesus says. He says that they heap up many words. And the reason why they do this, Jesus tells us, is because they think that by their many words, by their heaping up these empty, repetitive phrases, that God will listen to them. That God will hear what they have to say. And this view of prayer reveals the truth that our greatest need in our prayer lives isn't learning what to pray or how to pray better, but it's, it's rather a, a more enlightened view of God. The greatest hindrance to our prayer life is a low view of God. The pagan view of God is that of an often distant and malevolent yet powerful figure who may or may not be interested in the affairs of man. Um, the pagan god is usually busy, selfishly occupying him or her own self with her own or his own affairs. Although pagan gods may have the ability to intervene in the world of man, they usually have no real incentive to do so. Therefore, the pagan must incentivize his god to listen. That is why the pagan prays the way that he does. He, man, he must manipulate his God into action. He must try to get his God's attention. And then once he has his God's attention, he has to try to do something to make his God actually want to do something to help him in his worship. Sometimes there's a combination of magic words in pagan prayer. right? I think that's part of what we see here in verse 6 when it talks about heaping up empty phrases. Part of that is phrases that, that the pagans think mean something that will, God will find pleasing, but they're empty because God doesn't really care about them at all. But more often than not, the pagan prayer is characterized by quantity over quality. Right? It's, we're just going to pray and pray and pray, and we're going to repeat ourselves, and we're going to say as many words as possible so that God has to listen to us. We're going to bludgeon God with our prayers until He can't deny us. Pagan prayer is like the $5 Chinese buffet of organized religion. We read about this approach to prayer earlier in our scripture reading from 1 Kings 18, which I was half inclined to get up and just start preaching right after. I mean, I was lit up after that, the, the showdown between Elijah and these false prophets. So you have Elijah, the prophet of God, the prophet of Yahweh, and he's going up against 450 prophets of Baal, plus all the prophets of Asherah, these two pagan gods of the ancient world. And Elijah goes to them and he says, i got a proposition for you. Listen, listen to his words. He says, get two bulls for us. I'll let you choose them. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves. So you can just even, you choose the two bulls and then you can choose amongst the two which ones you want. And then let us cut them into pieces and... Put them on the wood and set it to fire. I'll prepare the other bowl and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. 
excuse me. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So we're both going to cut up a bowl. We're both going to put it on a big pylon, and we're going to wait to see which God lights the fire. The one who lights the fire is God. You call on your God, I'll call on my God. You pray to your God, I'll pray to my God, and we'll see who's who and what's what. And so the prophets of Baal did just that, and they prayed. The text tells us they prayed from morning till noon, hoping to be heard by their God, heaping up empty phrases, babbling, sputtering, stuttering, nonstop, dancing. And the text tells us that there was no response. Baal, Asherah, nowhere to be found, totally silent. And then Elijah, my hero, the sarcastic prophet comes along. Perhaps he's in deep thought. Maybe he's busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. The version we read this morning, maybe he's relieving himself. See, Elijah knew that these pagan priests, that their perception of God was too low. They viewed their gods to be a man just like them. So wouldn't it make sense for them to be off busy going to the bathroom? Wouldn't it make sense for them to be occupied doing something else? Wouldn't it make sense for these pagan man-like gods to be asleep somewhere and they need you to pray in such a way as to wake them up? And incredibly, the prophets of Baal did exactly what Elijah suggested. They continued to pray and then they did more. It says they, they shouted louder. They slashed themselves with their swords and spears as was their custom until the blood flowed. They're getting desperate now. Pay attention to us. We're cutting ourselves. Incantations, verbose speech, dancing, cutting, shouting, it's all the same thing. It's all just pagans trying to get their God to listen to them. And then Elijah moves to pray. And listen to the beautiful simplicity of the prayer of Elijah. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel... Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. How long did it take me to pray that? Ten seconds? Fifteen at most if I wasn't doing my best to be theatrical about it? No cutting, no dancing, a slight repetition for the sake of emphasis, but not a bunch of babbling. Just a simple, dead, earnest prayer. Elijah knew his God. He knew that Yahweh was not a man like him. He knew that he couldn't be manipulated or coerced into paying attention and to moving on his behalf. So my question for you this morning is, do you know that? Is your view of God accurate? Do you know that repeating yourself over and over again is not what is going to make God listen to you and answer your prayers? I don't know if you've ever been in a time of trouble where you're really feeling the heat and you go, please, God, don't let that. Please, God, don't let that. Please. You know, that's kind of our natural instinct. We just kind of repeat ourselves over and over again. And we're trying to add emphasis. But you should know that when we do that, that it doesn't matter to God. Do you know that saying in the name of Jesus at the end of your prayer is not like a magical talisman? What I mean is it's not like, it's not like the special secret word or perfect phrase that gets God to go, aha, 
been waiting for that. Now that I heard in the name of Jesus, oh, I'll do what you want me to do. This is not the way it works. Do you know that praying louder will not get God to listen to you? It may impress some of the people around you, but that's not really what we're aiming for. Do you understand that you don't have to bribe God to get Him to pay attention to you, even with your suffering? You don't have to flagellate yourself to get God to listen to you. With the Christian God, the only one and true God, there is no room for superstition in prayer. When we pray to God, we approach Him on His terms, the way that He has commanded us to pray. And so you should know this morning that God is not impressed in any way by the length of your prayers. What does two minutes or 20 minutes or two hours, what, what kind of difference does that make in the mind of an eternal and infinite God? You think an extra 18 minutes on your prayer is going to seem like much to him? A day is like a thousand years to our God. God is not impressed with your verbose prayers. And what verbose means is just exceedingly wordy, right? He's not impressed by your exceedingly wordy prayers. Uh, in Luke chapter 18, we see the story of two people who went to go pray to God, right? One is the Pharisee, the other the tax collector. The Pharisee, in the original Greek, prays a 28-word prayer. And it's very much a pagan prayer. It's just clothed in Jewish garb. On the other hand, the tax collector comes before the Lord. He falls on his face, can't even look up to heaven. He beats his chest and says, save me, I'm a sinner. He prays in the Greek a six-word prayer. The Pharisee wasn't heard by God, but the tax collector went home justified that day. And he only said six words. I remember the time when the Lord saved me. I didn't know what to say or how to say it. I just looked up to heaven where I thought God might be. And I said, I don't know what to do. Please save me. That was all of what I knew to say in that moment. But God heard me. And he did just that. God is not impressed with repetition. You see in Acts 19.34, devotees of Artemis, uh, the kind of local god of Ephesus, they cried out for two hours. All they did was repeat themselves for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Repeating themselves over and over again. But God doesn't care about this kind of prayer. The only time that you really see repetition in the Bible is for the sake of emphasis. And that's an aspect of the Hebrew language. The reason why in Isaiah 6, for example, you see holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty is because saying something three times in that way is meant to emphasize where in a language where there are no exclamation points, right? You just say the word three times and that emphasizes the weight of that word. And that's kind of the extent of repetition that you see in the Bible when it comes to worshiping God. Two, maybe three repetitions, but nothing more. You should also know that God is not impressed with, excuse me, impressed with complexity. Guys, God created every atom of every cell of every living thing in the universe. Okay, so uh, the idea that you will construct a prayer that will in some way impress him by how complex it is, it, it just seems very unlikely. God is not impressed with your creativity. And as a matter of fact, you should be very, very weary of creativity in prayer. See, that's what we want, right? We all want to be new, do something new, say something new. But the gospel that we have received is an old gospel. The truth that we believe for salvation is an old truth. It's an eternal one. The faith that we practice every single Sunday is a faith that was once and for all handed down to the saints. 
And anytime you find bad religion, you find somebody who's trying to be creative with it. Somebody who's trying to add a different element to it, to kind of spruce it up, give it a little bit of freshness. Have you considered the fact that when Jesus puts his students in the school of prayer, he gives them a template? One of the first criticisms I got in the church was when we had people start reading prayers that were like written out in manuscript form. One of the main reasons I did that is because I wanted people to pray more thoughtful prayers, and sometimes sitting down and writing them out really helps with that. But it's really not that much different than just using a template that the Lord Jesus himself gave us, right? We are free to adapt that template, but it's significant that he gave us a template to pray. God is not impressed with your vocabulary. So you can save the thesaurus for your freshman English paper. Uh, the word a day calendar really has no place in, the, place in the prayer closet. Just pray to God like you would talk to anybody that you honor and reverence. There's no need to try to use elaborate language. You know, the Lord's Prayer is so simple. The language is so plain that it can be prayed by a six-year-old. That's, that's by design. And maybe by a four-year-old, depending on the IQ of the parents. But that's by design. There's beauty in the simplicity. When I first got accepted into, do, into uh, the pastoral ministry, excuse me, when I first got accepted into the pastoral internship, uh, I grew very anxious. Like almost as soon as like the letter hit my inbox, you know, I read it and I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> supposed to be, oh, yay, but it was like, uh-oh. Uh, the man that I interned under was intimidating. And the other guys who I was going to be serving under there and learning from, they're also intimidating. They're all kind of like these, you know, type A personality, everything that they touch turns to gold kind of guys. Um, and so I called a friend of mine who had done the internship before me. And I said, hey man, do you, do you have any advice for me as I, as I kind of walk into this thing? And he said, yeah. Don't try to impress him. The guy who runs the internship. It seemed like good advice, if not obvious advice, but I just decided to ask him to elaborate. Hey man, what do you mean by that? And he said, listen, you're, you're not going to impress him. You know, he's friends with John Piper and Al Mohler and Lig Duncan. You know, these guys who all have these advanced degrees just like he does. The most popular preachers, you know, just geniuses with photographic memory, all these things. Just, he has a PhD from Cambridge University. He was a professor there. He's rubbed shoulders with the world's finest theologians, brightest intellectuals, and most charismatic communicators. So, when you walk in there as an intern, don't think that you can say or do anything that's going to impress him. I thought that was very helpful. How much truer should that be of us when we go to try and communicate with God? It's infinitely more true. There's nothing we can do to impress God in our prayers. So we shouldn't even think about prayer in that way. We don't need to impress God or motivate God to get him to listen to us. God is not in heaven pouting or distracted, or waiting for the right words, or the right phrase, or the right volume, or correct word count. Listen, the only thing that prevents God from hearing you in prayer is sin. The only thing that keeps God from listening to you in your prayers is sin, is your rebellion against Him. Pagans pray the way that they do because they sort of instinctually know that there is a barrier between them and God and their communication, right? Their conscience bears witness to it. Now, a pagan may not 
understand who the God is that there's a barrier separating them from. They may not understand the concept of sin and how it works in separating them. But even if they try to suppress it, even if they try to ignore it, they know because their conscience bears witness to their heart that there's a reason why they can't communicate well with God. And so they do what everyone does when they can't fix things on their own. They try to overcompensate. More volume, more words, more creativity, etc. Every false religion in the world has this in common. They try to fix that issue between them and God on their own. In their own power, in their own strength, by their own wisdom. Adam and Eve, first pagan worshippers on planet earth. They got separated from God because of sin. They realized they were ashamed. And rather than going to God and saying, God, cover us in our shame, they said, aha, we can cover ourselves. And then they made fig leaf underwear. Islam tries to practice the five pillars of true religion in order to earn a paradise, excuse me, a path to paradise. Roman Catholicism tries to avoid all of the most grievous forms of sin and do enough of the right kinds of good deeds to store up enough merit in heaven so that they don't have to suffer long in purgatory if they go there at all. Us evangelicals, at our worst, we try to fix the sin problem with generosity, with good works, and right theology. We try to fix our relationship with God in that way, but it's just as worthless. We may not worship Baal or Asherah in modern America, but false gods still abound in our land. And the truth is, is that all too often, even in the church of Jesus Christ, our approach to God is more often than not pagan than Christian. The only thing that will draw the gaze of God is holiness. The only thing that will garner the attention of your God in heaven is righteousness. And the bad news of the gospel is that we don't have any of that to give him. We don't have any of that to offer him in our prayers. And to further increase our sense of dread, no amount of theatrics or hocus pocus will make up for our lack of holiness before a holy and righteous God. Well, then what hope is there? What hope is there for us as fallen creatures to have any kind of ability to communicate with the God who made us and who ostensibly loves us? Well, the gospel answer to that question that Christians have been giving for the last 2,000 years is that Jesus Christ is our only hope. Is that Jesus Christ came and He lived a perfectly righteous life. And He was utterly and totally holy. And he gave up his life, laid it down for us on the cross. And in light of that sacrifice, we can once again be restored in our relationship to God. And now the blood of Jesus covers us if we belong to him. Now, here's what that means for your prayer lives. Here's what the gospel means for your prayer lives. If you are in Christ, if you are covered in His blood, if you are clothed in His righteousness, if you have been made holy through justification, and if you are being made holy through sanctification, well then, you should know that God delights to listen to your prayers. He doesn't listen to you like you're a stranger because you're not a stranger anymore. The Spirit of God has come and indwelt your heart and made you to cry out, Abba, Father. You have been adopted into the household of God and now He listens to you like He listens to one of His children because you are one of His children. 
There's no need to repeat yourself. God heard you the first time. And not only did he hear you, but he listened with delight because of the blood of Jesus. There's no need to try and construct the perfect prayer because a prayer that's offered up to God in faith, in the faith of his son, Jesus Christ, is as pleasing to God as his son, Jesus Christ is. There's no need to flagellate yourself because Jesus Christ took the lashes on his back so that you could be heard by the Father without having to suffer. If you are a Christian, your view of God should be radically different than that of your pagan neighbor. You should have a deep and abiding trust that when you speak to God in prayer, He hears you, that He's pleased with you, and that He will answer your prayers according to His will. If you're here this morning, you don't know what it means to talk to God in that way. If you don't know what it means to have this kind of relationship with God, I want to encourage you to consider your sin. And to ask yourself if it's worth it. Whatever it is that you're clinging to, this sin in your life, is it worth it? Would you not rather have a relationship with the God who made you? Or do you want to keep groping for Him in the darkness? If you want to know more about what that looks like, I'd encourage you to talk to me or any one of the elders or really any member of this church after the service so that we can talk more about the gospel. Now, uh, I don't have any points for the sermon, but if I did, that would be the end of point number one because there's still something pretty significant to address here. The not point number two. Jesus begins his next sentence in verse eight with these words. He says, Do not be like them. Do not be like them. Well, like who? Like the pagans. Don't pray like the Gentiles. Don't pray like someone who doesn't know God. But then Jesus moves on and he he gives them the theological reason, right? Why they shouldn't pray that way. He says, look at verse 8 again. He says, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Right? What's the for, therefore? Well, it's telling you why you shouldn't pray that way. Because you know something about God that should lead you to pray differently than the people who don't know these things about God. And the thing that you should know about God is that He's omniscient. Omniscient, kids, is a fancy $2 word. If you've got like, the sermon note sheets over there, you can write this down. Omniscience, it means that God knows everything. Right? There's, there's not a thing out there that He doesn't know. All the facts about science and math and literature, history, he knows it. All the intimate details of your life and your family, he knows it. All of the thoughts of your heart, hidden deep down in secret, that you think no one has access to but you, wrong. God knows it. He is completely and totally omniscient. He's all-knowing. And Jesus says that if our prayer life, excuse me, that if we know that God is omniscient, then our prayer life should reflect this reality. In this context, Jesus is saying that God already knows what we need before we ask Him, and that should influence the way that we ask Him. God already knows what we need before we ask Him, and that should influence the way that we ask Him. We don't have to ask Him like pagans, because we should trust that our God already knows. Now, this idea that, on the one hand, God already knows what we need, But on the other hand, we still need to go to God in prayer and to ask Him for things that we need. 
This is, these are two truths that seem to create a sense of tension in our hearts and minds when we hear them, right? Uh, it's a little unsettling to us, right? Like the obvious question in light of that is, well, why does God want us to ask him for things if he already knows that we need things? You know, the really strange thing about this is that Jesus doesn't feel any kind of tension whatsoever about those two truths sitting next to each other. Right? It, it, it bothers us, but Jesus says it in one breath and it makes perfect sense to him. God already knows what you need, but you still need to ask him for things. You see this same kind of uncomfortableness come up when in a church we teach about God's sovereignty over salvation and man's responsibility, right? On the one hand, we know that God sovereignly elects and predestines for salvation. On the other hand, we know that the church is called to go out and to preach the gospel and to pray for the lost, right? God is sovereign. He will do it. It's already done. It will come to pass. On the other hand, we have a responsibility. And those two truths, as they sit next to each other, they kind of make us uncomfortable, but they don't make God uncomfortable. They don't bother Jesus in any way. Now, I don't want to lead us down a rabbit trail this morning. I simply want to show you that God teaches His complete and utter sovereignty over salvation and simultaneously teaches His people to pray for and to preach to the lost. The question that we need to ask then is this. If Jesus, excuse me, yeah, Jesus and the Father already know what we need, what incentive would there be then for him to have us ask him for it? There's a reason why God knows what we need and still chooses to order reality in such a way so that we go to him to ask him for the things that we need. He could very easily just meet our needs, but he chooses not to do things that way. And the question is, why? In order to help answer that, I want to I give you an illustration. I love it when my kids need me. Sometimes. Right? This is a basic general truth. I generally love it when my kids need me. And right now, uh, Patience and Isabella are young, so they both need me fairly often. Right? Uh, a common theme in my home is when uh, Patience is getting frustrated with something that she can't do. Right? Like untying a knot in a shoelace. You guys remember that from being a kid? You know, just, no, just me? Okay feeling like the world's going to come apart because you can't get the knot out of the shoelace, right? And I know that something like this is happening in our home because it sounds like there's an exorcism going on in the next room, you know? It's just grunting, groaning, huffing, puffing, pulling, throwing. I'm sure there's like whole body contortions, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, when I hear that, I could just say, hey, baby, come here. Let daddy help you. Let daddy fix that for you. And sometimes I do do that. But more often than not, I don't. More often than not, I wait for patients to get to the point where she's reached the absolute end of her rope and she has to ask for help. Sometimes I have to coach her along that path, right? But, and when she does, I usually say something like, come here, baby, tell me what you need. Let me help you. And one of the main reasons why I want for her to come to me in that way is because I'm honored as her father when she does. When there's something that patience needs that she can't do on her own and she comes to me and she says, Dad, I can't do this. I need you to help me. I need you to be my sufficiency. I'm glorified in that as her father. If only she said it quite so eloquently, right? 
I'm not capable, you are capable. That, that bestows honor and dignity on me. In the same way, you know, the wife goes, honey, you know, the, the pickle jar, I can't get it. And the husband's like, well, all right, here we go. And then, and then he goes, runs in the back and gets the power tool and opens it. Because those pickle jars. In the same, yet infinitely more profound way, God already knows what we need, and yet... He calls us to bring our needs before Him because He is honored and glorified when we admit our needs to Him and to the world. When we admit that we are not all sufficient within ourselves, that we need help from outside of ourselves. He's honored when we glorify Him as the all-sufficient, all-powerful, perfectly loving Father who is perfectly capable of meeting every single one of our needs. When my children need something from me, Sometimes I ignore them from a little bit, for a little bit. But in general, I don't make them jump up and down. I don't make them say special words. I don't make them say it loud enough. I don't make them hop up and down. I don't make them go through a ritual in order to be heard by me. No, I love them. And because I love them, because they're my children, I care for them when they make their requests known to me. But, as a human, I'm very often distracted I am considerably selfish. I am more often than not incapable. If you happen to get a call from me sometime this week asking for help changing a light switch, you'll understand exactly what I mean. I'm just very incapable. But our Father in Heaven, He's none of these things. He is infinitely focused. He is completely capable of handling all the needs of all of His children all at once. He's never overwhelmed by our requests. And He is always willing and able to give us exactly what we need. And He delights to do so. As Russell read this morning, and I don't think he knew I was going to have this in my sermon, Jesus is talking to His followers and He says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Now there may be things that my daughters need from me that I don't know about. But there is nothing that we need from God that He doesn't know about. Now, sometimes God may give you what you need before you ask. That's what we would expect from a, a perfectly merciful God. There are times when we need something and we're, we're not asking for it when we should, and He just meets the need because He loves us and He's merciful and He's gracious. But I'd be willing to bet that there is something in your life, even right now, that God would be more than happy to do for you, but He hasn't done it yet because He's waiting for you to bring your request to Him in prayer. It's not that He's ignorant of your need. He knows. He knew it before you were born, that on this day you would have this need. It's that He's waiting for you to glorify Him by bringing it to Him in prayer and by acknowledging His ability to serve you. Uh, for some people... Borrowing money is not that big of a deal, right? They'll borrow money from anybody at any time. For other people, borrowing money is like, uh, I would rather starve than borrow money, right? I'd rather let my house get foreclosed on than borrow money to ask to help pay the rent. For this person, to admit a need is a tremendous act of humility. Right? If, if, if a person who says, I just don't borrow money, if they finally get to the point where they're desperate enough, they have to go hat in hand, and they say, hey, can, can I borrow $300 until 
this business transaction goes through until this paycheck comes through. It's a tremendous act of humility. And that is another reason why God calls us to bring our needs before Him in prayer. Not only does bringing our needs before God in prayer glorify Him, but it also humbles us. It reminds us that what God has said is true, that only in Jesus Christ do we live and move and have our being. Only through Jesus Christ can any of our needs be met. Our physical needs like bread, our spiritual needs like forgiveness. Only through Him can any of these needs ever be met. Prayer glorifies God and humbles the proud. And that is you and me. And this is a perfect place to be, to be humble, because we know that the Lord gives grace to those who are humble. So I want to challenge you this morning to stop trying to resolve tensions in the Bible that are not tensions to God. They're, They're tensions to you, but they're not tensions to God. And that's quite significant. In Psalm 139... The first four verses are incredible. The psalmist prays like this. Listen to what he says. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know me. Well, what do you you think the extent is of God's knowledge of David as he prays this? When he says, you know me? You just keep reading. He says, you know when I sit and I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You know what's going on in here. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, before I ever go to speak, you, Lord, know it completely. This is incredible language. It's really surprising then when you get to the end of the psalm, after he spent this much time saying, Lord, you know me, you know everything about me, the outside, the inside. Everything. There's nothing hidden from you. At the very end of the psalm, he says this. You have searched me, Lord, and now search me more and know my heart. There's no tension there. There may be to you, but there isn't to the psalmist and there isn't to God. So church, as we go to God in prayer this week, I want us to do so with the confidence of a child whose father knows all of our needs, with the boldness of an heir to the throne who has unlimited access to God's grace because of Jesus Christ. We should go before God with the humility of a beggar who knows that, only, that the only way any good thing will ever come to us is through God's mercy and grace. And to also go to Him with the knowledge of God that comes through His Word by the power of His Spirit. Let me pray. Father, your word tells us that your spirit has promised to lead your people into all truth. And we pray that the truth that we have received this morning would not just rattle around in our brains, but rather that it would change our practices, that we would pray like redeemed sons and daughters of the true and living God. If there is any remnant of the world left in our prayer lives, I pray that you would eradicate us and teach us how to pray more like your son has taught us. We pray this in his name. Amen. Please stand with me.